We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by David Owen. Lord Owen, the Member of Parliament for Plymouth Sutton from 1966 to 1974, Member for part of Parliament for Plymouth Devonport from 1974 to 1992, uh, Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs from 1977 to 1979, a significant figure and leader of the Social Democratic Party throughout the 1980s, and author of a new book that we will be discussing today, Riddle, Mystery and Enigma, 200 Years of British-Russian Relations. Welcome to the podcast, Lord Owen. Glad to be here. It's glad. It's great to have you here. Now, the, the first question I'd like to ask may seem uh, a bit obvious, but what made you decide to write this particular book? Oh, I've been studying uh, Russia for quite some time. Uh, I went there at a rather important stage in 1977 and met with President Brezhnev, who was aging at the time. And I was met at the airport as I landed by Andrei Gromyko, a very uh, almost legendary foreign minister. And... None of us really knew quite how they were going to react. We'd not had uh, ministerial visits for six years. Um, one of my predecessors, Alex Douglas Hume, had thrown out a large number of so-called diplomats, i.e. spies, mm. which the Russians didn't like. And so the atmosphere was very unsure. And... Uh, it turned out to be an extremely important and worthwhile visit. We might come to that later. But I also was nearly 20 years after I'd finished in the Balkans, being the EU peace negotiator, uh, in business in Russia, and in particular in steel and iron ore in a place called Staryoskov, which was 600 kilometers south of Moscow. And I was also chairman of uh, UCOS International. UCOS at that time was a, the biggest Russian oil company, the most successful Russian oil company. And pretty soon after I was appointed, uh, Mr. Kordikovsky, who was really its genius and its uh, a very effective leader, uh, clashed with Putin, who was only three years into his presidency, and Kordakovsky was uh, taken off to jail and stayed there for 10 years. So I lived through the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I felt it was worthwhile trying to look back at a 200-year span of Russian-British relations, of which some years it's been extremely good and friendly relations. Others, much less so. Sometimes we fought each other. Sometimes at the start of the book, we fought with each other against the Ottoman Empire. Admiral Codrington led a fleet with French admiral and Russian admiral. Probably the most successful uh, naval engagement under the sail ever, even for its implications I mean, it sunk 60 ships of the Ottoman Empire without losing a single ship of themselves. This was in the Bay of Navarino in Greece, right the furthest south part of Greece on the Peloponnese in 1827. And on um, Navarino, the first chapter deals primarily um, with the, the, the path uh, to that and deals with George Canning, who was, of course, an incredibly pivotal um, figure, particularly in, in foreign affairs during the 18th and 19th centuries. And you, you make a um, perhaps a, <laughs> a somewhat unflattering comparison for, for Tony Blair um, with uh, Tony Blair, with Canning. What do you think makes Canning stand out in, in terms of the way that he approached Britain's relationship uh, to Russia that distinguishes him from politicians both of his era and those subsequent to him? 
Well, I think he saw that the Ottoman Empire's attempt to deprive Greece of independence and indeed to have a continuing war with the Greeks and um, behavior on both sides was not particularly attractive, but by far the worst for the Ottomans. And I think Canning understood that this couldn't go on, that Greece was entitled to its independence and that the Ottoman Empire had to be challenged. And they had to understand that if they went on uh, fighting the Greeks and refusing to accept independence, they would incur the wrath, not just of uh, Britain, but of France and Russia. And he put together this combination of three countries, persuaded the Tsar, who was far from convinced that they could join with us, and then actually spent a month in Paris, living in the British Embassy with a friend of his, uh, cajoling and persuading the French to come into this combined operation. And I think it was very skillful diplomacy. And I think that it was diplomacy with an edge. If you're serious about a major diplomatic initiative, in those days, you had to be prepared to back it with force. And in many ways, that's the same in the present generation. And we've watched too many expeditions in which British involvement has lacked clear-cut objectives and quite de determined position that you would, uh, if the other side would not cooperate, you were prepared to use force to implement it. And that is the Battle of Navarino. Of course, the side story was the extraordinary attitude of he was not yet prime minister, the Duke of Wellington, who should have stuck to being a general, not but rather disastrous politician, who was so upset that the port navy had been so defeated that he labeled the engagement the untoward event and sort of tried to blot it out. And here were the on the streets of London and the big cities and in Moscow and in Paris, everybody's celebrating this great victory. And here was uh, Wellington influencing the government to virtually disown the operation and refuse to pay bounty or look after the widows of people who had been killed in the engagement. Mm. It led to Codrington uh, resigning as an admiral, fighting for parliament, telling his constituency that he would get a law passed to pay bounty to the men and to uh, pay payments to the widows of anybody lost. And he did this. And this strange historical event is that the constituency was Plymouth Dunport, my own constituency for actually the longest time I have any member of parliament, but it, you know, I come from Plymouth, and it was really fascinating to read about Codrington. And, of course, after he got his legislation through, he went back to the Navy, and they had to promote him. So he won on both counts. He won on the, uh, the battle, and he won eventually against the politicians. But it's a very strange, rather magnificent story, actually. Mm, yes, absolutely, it is. Um but one point that I would I would just like to to pick up on is um, you, you mentioned, of course, Canning having to spend um, time in, in Paris convincing uh, the French to support him in action against the Ottomans. And of course, the Ottomans had a, um, a, a long standing link with the French. I think the um, first treaty between the, the, the French kingdom and the Ottomans goes back to, to 1541 and, and, and the French had an, an influence on um, the later Europeanization of um, certain parts of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, how often do you think that Britain, in, in terms of its historical place in Europe and, and, and convincing different nations, whether uh, to support it or not, faced a barrier in terms of the um, alliances that the the French had made up over um, numerous years. I mean, the French obviously famously allied with the, the Scots at, at one point, the, the, the Scottish Kingdom, and also with the United States. 
do you think that this is something that has, has been a continual historical recurring theme that the uh, the French um, blocking of uh, Britain and, and, and England's attempts to make decisive uh, foreign policy decisions? Well, of course, the French had always uh, had a grievance at the spectacular defeats of their navy at the hands of Admiral Nelson. And there's no doubt that many strategists in France wanted closer links to Egypt, particularly the military. Some people in Britain shared that too. They wanted to split Egypt from the Ottoman Empire if Britain couldn't control it. And I think that the Ottoman Empire had a strange grip on politicians in Britain as well, uh, Palmerston and Disraeli. Uh, it took Gladstone at the end of the century to point out in some of his famous campaigns that the humanitarian record of the Ottoman Empire was disastrous and that we should be prepared to split from this association. Some people believe, and I certainly believe, for example, we shouldn't really have fought with the French in the 50s, in 1850s, in uh, you know, the charge of the light brigade is what we all remember that particular war for. But I don't think it really had any justification, uh, certainly from British. It was basically a French Ottoman Empire uh, battle. So I think it is very important to um, spend time with people uh, if you're trying to get a diplomatic initiative and pull countries together that have got histories of disputes. And I think this was one of Canning's great skills as foreign secretary. Tragedy was that he uh, died very early on after becoming prime minister. And so he never actually saw what happened with the Battle of Navarino. So I, I think that whole relationship with the Ottoman Empire takes quite a lot of explaining mm -hmm. and not always in our interests. And similarly, the, uh, the attitude of uh, Wesley brothers, uh, the Duke and his brother who was Viceroy of India in the so-called great game, this belief that Russia was after uh, India and was going to attack India through Afghanistan. There's very little real evidence. I mean, it was thought of from time to time, but um, I think the Russians watched the British being defeated by the Afghans. We had one great victory, but two disastrous defeats with some amusement. And I think they were very skeptical about getting involved, but Britain believed in the great game, I think much more than Russia did. Mm. And on the point of um, the great game, you of course uh, mention um, Britain's perhaps paranoia about the Russians seizing India. How much do you think that the, the British to a certain extent overemphasized or, or, or were um, far too um, wrapped up in their own um, imperial ambitions and that they thought that Russia must necessarily want to, to grab their, their own, um, the jewel in, in, in their crown. Do you think that it was a, a, a kind of um, imperial paranoia that drove the great game and, and continued it to be a part of the, the political consciousness of Britain during the 19th century? I think it had its advocates in Whitehall, and I mentioned the Duke of Wellington and his brother. I think they were the big leaders of this. There were some signs of Russia showing interest. I think they were envious of the extent to which, because of Clive of India and the trading relationship with India, Britain was becoming uh, much richer, and they would like some of that action. But I think that's a long way from you know, seeing that Russia had this as a high objective for which they would fight the British. I think there's a consequence of this. We spent too little time in trying to encourage 
Indian nationhood and not make it a hostile force and to be more generous in our uh, spending priorities on the Indian people and not just taking it all away um, back to Britain. I mean, these are the, the judgments of our empire. But I think that we did a lot of good in India. I don't want to believe that we did, our rule was all bad. Mm. But it was hierarchical and it didn't identify enough, except some of the colonial civil servants, with the interests of the Indians. And so they were hostile. But of course, India came into the First World War and helped us, as did Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. We gave those last three independence and pledged to that in the First World War. We didn't make the same pledge for India. And I think we would have been wiser to have done so. And of course, the result of um, the First World War occurring during the First World War was the Russian Revolution, which sparked a great deal of um, panic in Britain. How pivotal in changing Britain's opinion and um, concern about Russia do you think the revolution was? Because, I mean, there are some people who might suggest that it is perhaps, um, you know, not too much of a, 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 a radical shift in the long term, whereas others um, see it very much as a, a flashpoint in which Britain became more hostile to Russia? Well, uh, in 1914 to 1916, Russia was on our side in the First World War and played quite a big role. Then the internal struggle with Lenin and the, the Tsar losing weight and capacity in controlling the country started to develop. And they played less of a role so that by... 1917, they were really uh, much weaker. And that's, of course, when we had to decide what to do about it. And Lloyd George, who incidentally was a really very close friend of Churchill, decided against the Tory coalition partner to bring Churchill back and forget the Dardanelles and not hold that against him as a cabinet minister, but not in a senior role. And at that stage, Churchill started off by really becoming the champion of the whites against the reds in the civil war in Russia. And people forget, you know, I, I, two American presidents, uh, Obama and uh, Clinton, have claimed that America never fought Russia. Well, they did, they certainly did in the uh, aftermath of the, and during the Second World War when uh, Russia split. And it was very difficult, uh, both politically and militarily, to help Russia because the, the whites had been acquiescent and profited from the rule of the Tsar. And the Tsar's rule had become very, very unpopular with the poor who had been treated very shabbily. And Lenin was on a winning streak in the sense of identifying his opposition to the Tsar and linking his communist views to, as he saw it, and I think genuinely saw it at that time, on the, the poorer parts of Russia, the poorer people of Russia, and they actually eventually rallied more to the Reds. And the legacy of the Whites' identification with the Tsar led to a weakening of their position. So much so that Lloyd George saw what was happening. And he realized, too, that Britain had no real enthusiasm for continuing the war. 1914-18 war had been a terrible war with huge casualties. And though he was ready to help a little the Russians in their civil war, he was certainly not ready to make great economic sacrifices and aware of public opinion in a way that Churchill was not. And it rose, led to some quite serious exchange of opinions. And basically... Lloyd George had to tell Churchill to grow up. You know, mm. you can't push this beyond a certain point, and you're pushing it beyond the point that the cabinet and indeed the British people will accept. 
And in this case, Lloyd George was closer to Woodrow Wilson, who also didn't want America to continue to have to fight in the civil war inside Russia. Uh, it, it was a very interesting relationship, but it showed Churchill's affection for the Russian people and his belief that Russia was a very important country. And yeah, he was right. Communism was going to present and did present huge problems for the next few decades to us all. And mm. you could say Churchill saw that, but he was not able really to, and I doubt even with more resources, he would have been able to swing the battle. It's a, one of the ifs of history. Mm. The French say for all the ifs in the world, you could put Paris in a bottle. And certainly one of the big ifs of history is if the whites had won and crushed communism, how different a world it would have been mm. for the next, well, 100 years. Yes. And of course, um, the, the threat of communism had an immediate uh, effect in, in terms of British politics, uh, particularly for the first Labour government, Ramsay MacDonald's um, 1924 Labour administration. How difficult do you think it was for the early Labour Party to be able to separate itself from um, implications and insinuations that it was merely a British front of um, communism rather than being a, a, a separate ideology? Well, it's always been a slight problem for Labour that um, because they're on the left, therefore they have more uh, ideological views similar to communism in the sense of wanting greater equality, wanting a fairer, juster society and being on the side of the people who are least fortunate. But I, of course, there was this famous letter that was passed mm. off in the press as being uh, involving the, the Labour government with the um, communist Russians. But it never really, I think took off. I mean, Ramsay MacDonald was such an obviously decent, rather moderate figure, and you know, had many of the great qualities of the Scottish people, I speak as a Welshman. And I, I mean, he was a very remarkable person. Um, it ended disastrously with the failure to handle the world economic crisis wisely. But the Ramsay MacDonald has been restored, I think, greatly in the history of Labour and is now seen to have had many virtues which were never really recognised at the time. But I don't think it, the British people really ever bought into this idea that Ramsay MacDonald or later Clem Attlee were closet communists. Churchill tried that rather outrageously <laughs> on a number of occasions, but it never really ran. Hmm. Why do you think then that in terms of communism and fear of communism um, insinuating and uh, worming its way into um, domestic politics, it was much easier for um, American politicians to believe that there was a, a great communist threat and the American people to believe in a great communist, internal communist threat, than it was for the, the British public to believe a similar thing of, of uh, Labour politicians? I don't think I really weigh your premise. I think that um, you're too young to remember the war, but I lived through the war, but it's a young person. And when the war came to an end, and Major Attlee uh, put himself forward to be Prime Minister, many, many people judged that he'd been firstly a very loyal deputy in the coalition government to Winston Churchill, that he had, in his moderate, rather quiet way, uh, done a lot of the administering of that government while Churchill got on with the, well, he was Minister of Defence as well as being Prime Minister. There was a lot of mutual respect between each other, but didn't stop Winston Churchill um, trying to 
in the strains and stresses of general elections, bring up the communist bogey. But I just think he never had any... My father fought in the war and was a doctor, voted Labour in 1945. I think he voted Labour because he wanted to see a national health service introduced and didn't like having to ask poor patients to have to pay for a consultation. I think these things come down to domestic problems, mostly very few general elections in Britain over the last 200 years that I've studied have been influenced by foreign affairs. It's been there in the background. If you've got it wrong, you might pay a price. But I don't think anybody has ever really thought um, that... Uh, I mean, even Corbyn, who's, in my view, uh, far uh, too much to the left and to the undemocratic left. But I think many people thought he was a communist, or if they tried it, it never really worked. There's a good deal of common sense in the British public, and they sort through a lot of the, the, the angles and the emphasis that the politicians put on events, and they can see through it, usually. Mm. And I think they were doing so in the present day. Do you think, um, in terms of the American public in, in, in relation to communism, that there was a reason that perhaps they were more um, susceptible to believing that there were communist infiltrators? Because, I, I'm, 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 I, I mean, I, I, I agree with your point. I'm, I'm just uh, trying to um, ascertain, do, do you think that there, there was a difference between the American public's um, perception of, of, of communism in, in America to the, the British? And, and if so, why do you think that there is that perhaps difference? Well, in the late 40s, early 50s, the United States had a very unattractive attitude to people who had any links with Russia or communism, mm. and they were constantly seeing spies and had a, some very unattractive um, public pursuit of people who uh, were loyal American citizens, but whose loyalty was called into question by, it was called McCarthyism. So I, I, I don't think America's very different in its attitude overall, this period of 200 years of history to Russia. I mean, America's contributed, as the book argues, some of the really great thinking about Russia. George Kennan and his famous letter, when he argued for containment of Stalin after the war, became the basis for the Marshall Plan, which hugely helped the recovery of Europe after the devastation of the war, but also was the basics for creating NATO as a um, political and military force, but in defense of Western values, not to be, to fight. I mean, it's interesting, you know, with all the American power, that we did nothing in NATO when Hungary was overrun in 1956, when uh, Czechoslovakia was invaded. Uh, NATO never used its force to try and change those acts of aggression. And even now, we're watching what's happening uh, as Russia invaded Ukraine. We are helping the Ukrainians, and rightly so. But we are not uh, doing so in the sense of being part of their battle and uh, taking on Russia. We have still held to the view that NATO is a defensive organization. And so although the temptation in, at times when you see some of the appalling incidents that are coming out of the Ukrainian war at the moment, and pretty indefinite war crimes, and maybe even genocide, you, uh, some people think, well, why don't 
America and Britain and France and Germany fight them. So, I mean, I, I tend to think that uh, free men and women have a basic instinctive dislike of communism and they don't like it and never have done. But that doesn't mean that people who practice communism are always to be treated as uh, enemies. If they decide to take up arms against us, then we will defend ourselves. But I think that this is also mirrored by an attitude to the Russian people. I mean, Russia is a great civilization. Look at their writers, their poets, their ballet dancers. Their, you know, it is a, it's a very, very fascinating country and a fascinating people. And Churchill always said, don't blame the Russians. We're fighting communism. We're fighting Stalinism. And now in the Ukraine battle, uh, Boris Johnson is quite right to keep saying, this is not a fight against Russia and Russians. It's against their leaders. It's against what Putin has become, a dictator. But remember, as recently as 2000. And three, Putin was invited to Britain on a state visit and stayed in Buckingham Palace. And I went to dinner for him. And we had a hope that he would follow on the reforms started under Gorbachev and then under Yeltsin. And there was, I think, quite good grounds for believing that he could have developed Unfortunately, went bad on us and reverted to not communism. He's not a communist. Mm. He is in a dictator. And communism, even now when you see it under a very powerful leader in President Xi in China, still has a Politburo and the rules of having agreement in the Politburo. I mean, the Politburo wasn't itself democratic. But within its working organizations, decisions were taken on majorities, except when Stalin became a dictator. And now, of course, under uh, Putin, it's, there's no Politburo. And one of our problems in dealing with Putin is that he has a narrow political base. And I think it's getting ever narrower. Why do you think Putin change tack? Because, I mean, you, you, you say there that um, going back to 2003, there were hopes that he would continue on with the reforms that we had seen previously um, enacted by Russian leaders. Why do you think he changed? Well, this book talks quite a lot, devotes quite a lot to Andropov. And I think that we will never understand Putin until we understand Andropov's KGB which Putin in Dresden, Germany, was a junior member of. Andropov was 17 years head of the KGB. He was only president for a little over a year because he was very severely ill and on renal dialysis. But he was a very interesting man. But one of the most interesting facets of him is that he was not corrupt. There was no personal corruption at all. He never made money out of communism, and he had very interesting views, pragmatic in many respects. When I was to Russia in the 70s, it was just starting to allow Russians, Jewish Russians, to leave the country and go to Israel. And behind it, really, it was Antipov who took the view Instinctively, Jewish people are libertarians. Very frequently you find them on the cause of rights, and uh, it's one of the attractive features of them. And they were therefore dissidents and creating trouble. And Andropov asked, well, what, why don't we let them go? It doesn't matter to us. And there was a relaxation, and it got gathered momentum in the late 70s, early 80s. You now find, of course, a very large number of Russian origin, Jewish people in Israel. So 
I think we need to look carefully at Andropov. When Putin became president, when he was appointed president by Yeltsin, not elected, he put a wreath of flowers on Andropov's grave. When he was elected president, he put a plaque for Andropov on his flat in Moscow. And then later, a life-size statue built of Andropov in St. Petersburg. This very complex man, Putin, has a lot of his origins in the KGB and in some of the thinking of Andropov. But unfortunately, Putin is corrupt and money seems to matter to him much more than, than is proper, really, for an active uh, member of Andropov's KGB. So he's, he's shifted, but it, we have to look at Putin with very different eyes. He's the first dictator since Stalin, and he's not a communist. In regards to, I mean, you mentioned Andropov there, but one of the other figures that I, I think um, through whom you can uh, understand uh, Putin to a great extent is Surkov. And, and Surkov, of course, um, came up with the idea of, of, of non-linear war, which um, Putin certainly seemed uh, to have, have practiced in his prior um, military um, campaigns, in his, in his, in his prior uh, wars, but seems to be coming somewhat um, unstuck in Ukraine. It, it, it seems certainly to not be working there. Why do you think that the attempt to use the same policy that, that, that Putin did um, during um, in, in, in Syria has failed in Ukraine in, in terms of creating a kind of cognitive dissonance, at least in the West, I mean, domestically it seems to have worked, but a kind of cognitive dissonance in terms of the way that the war has been um, reported. You have to be very careful. Uh, and the Ukrainian war is, as we talk, uh, five weeks on, and many things may happen. And as far as making it more like Syria, an ominous development recently is that the new commander, having the original one been dismissed, made his name and reputation in Syria and was the Russian general responsible more than probably anyone else for Aleppo. So we may well be seeing a very different type of battle raged in Ukraine. And we may well see, uh, I hope we do not, because I think it would have to become a game changer, uh, the use of gas, which was used by him, that general, in considerable quantities in Syria. So I think that it's too early to judge what's happening in the Ukrainian war, except to say that it is an extraordinary misreading of history. I mean, Ukraine is complicated and always has been. But remember, Khrushchev came from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Brezhnev spent much time in Ukraine. There are a huge number of Russian families who identify with towns like Kiev, uh, cities like Kiev and Odessa particularly. And I mean, it's now called the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church, but it is still basically Orthodox. And there are many, many, many families of people fighting who know and have relations on the other side. Now, that has not yet had much impact on the strategies of, the, uh, of Putin, and he has made some quite big mistakes. But he nevertheless is a, has built the Russian army up to being a powerful force. It looks perhaps we, as if we overemphasized it, but it still is a powerful force. Don't underestimate it. And even when this uh, battleship has been sunk, it's a very old battleship, built in the 1980s. But the Ukrainians have got something which is always crucial in warfare. They have very high morale. They are fighting literally for their country. And they are fighting for a cause which they think to be honorable and correct.
don't ever underestimate the capacity of mood and mentality. And I think you see that over the last 200 years, that when people have fought with conviction and passion, I mean, the Russians won in most of the yardsticks of success, the Second World War. It's hard for us to realize this. We think we won the war and with a little help from the Americans. Well, it was a hell of a lot of help from the Americans. And even so, the real tank battles, the real battles of the Second World War were between the Russians and the Germans. And the casualties of the Germans on the Russian front and the Russians themselves, Stalingrad and Leningrad, the siege of Leningrad, they, their casualties are massive. Mm. So when we come to May the 9th and the celebration of great wars, the Russians think of it, we have to recognize that there is a huge pride in their armed forces, and Putin is playing on that pride very cleverly and winning back a bit of support for his, in my view, rather narrow approach to Ukraine. But even so, I mean, on Ukraine, he is wanting to create uh, a country the size of the old Soviet Union. He wants the defense in depth. He complains that Petersburg is now something like 800, 900 kilometers away from the first NATO country in the Baltics, whereas before they were something like 160,000 kilometers. So he sees NATO creeping closer and closer to his boundaries, and he wants them roll back. So he has a strategy. He does not want Ukraine to be part of NATO. He's not, he's arguing for neutrality. We've yet to see the challenge that may be coming quite quickly mm. in that the um, Finns, Finland is changing its policy mm. in neutrality and wanting to join NATO. So it's a very difficult decision coming in the present circumstances. Who knows what will happen? But certainly Russia will see that as a hostile act because they have a huge border, many, many miles with um, Finland. And they're used to thinking of Finland, the whole policy of Finlandization, and then the neutral status of Finland, which has been very skillfully conducted by the Finns. But they see uh, Ukraine attacked and also the three Baltic states. Even when I was in Russia in 1970, Brezhnev and uh, Gromyko took me on about their feeling that we had misconstrued the Helsinki Final Act, which was signed in 1975. And two years later, they were really beating me up by saying that we had really said that the three Baltic states would stay in the Russian sphere of influence. And now I was claiming that they were free to become independent countries if they wished. I think they're wrong, and I don't think that the Helsinki Final Act had that uh, meaning in the words. But I think Gromyko probably genuinely believed this, and there was something angry and sincere in his complaints. It wasn't just for show. So we have these historic differences. We have to somehow overcome them. We must give a much higher priority uh, that at the moment is being given to getting an end to the Russian-Ukrainian war. But it's very difficult at this stage, with no obvious victor, but a very surprising turn of events and success for the Ukrainians to see an, a quick end, though I personally spent a lot of time looking for the little shifts might be able to be levered up into a peace settlement, but it's not easy. And my time in the Balkans, two and a half years of trying to get peace, when you're constantly lied to, this is one of the real problems, hmm. uh, the total disrespect for the truth that 
comes with communism and is a legacy of communism that is damaging Russia as we speak. I'd like to now just turn um, briefly um, away from the book uh, for a moment to ask you about um, Britain's recent uh, decision in regards to um, migrants from Calais uh, to Dover and the plan uh, to send at least some of them to uh, Rwanda. What are your thoughts on this plan? Do you think it is um, workable as the government seems to suggest, or do you think that it will be uh, a catastrophe as, as other people have suggested? Well, I'm not really into what I call domestic politics. Um, I can only tell you the principles which we have to try and deal with. We have a very serious problem, and the world has a problem with economic migrants. You cannot live with people upping sticks and just simply moving across national boundaries because they think they've got a better prospects of a richer and a healthier life there. And that there, are, there is, whether we like it or not, a structured map of the world in which live, people live behind boundaries. We don't have walls, thank goodness, except in some cases. But we can't have uh, great movements of population where the poor move to the rich countries without creating intolerable burdens and unacceptable circumstances with which no politicians can deal with because the people effectively um, walk away from them. And we've seen, of course, over Brexit, this point where a whole raft of people, a large group of them, enough to win a referendum, got so disillusioned with being told that the government couldn't do this because it was done by a European directive or it was a European parliament decision or it was that. And uh, I saw that in my home city of Plymouth. Plymouth voted 60-40 to come out of the uh, European Union. And I, as a very convinced member of the European Union, believed that it reached the point where it was no longer acceptable in our own country. And as a Democrat, I believe we uh, would have to get out. I don't think that will be reversed. So against that background, you look at this issue of um, immigration. And of course, it, the borders of the European Union are the problem. They do not, they have they do not control the border, people coming in from Turkey and Syria and Iraq and even Afghanistan through uh, the islands of Greece, which are very close, and through other entries into Europe where they smuggled across. And then they go through the whole of Europe and end up on the French uh, channel ports like Calais and elsewhere. And they take this very dangerous method of smugglers, people smugglers in rubber boats, and we've seen them collapse and 50 people or more dying. And this is going to get worse. I don't think you can just sit back and accept this. I don't think the people of this country will tolerate you doing so. So a government has to find a way of dealing with it, and it's a hell of a difficult problem, a hell of a difficult problem, because if they... If they don't change the dynamics at the moment, you get into a rubber dinghy and you cross over the channel and well, you can go through all the legal things and you can still be found that you are not a proper asylum seeker, but you stay in Britain. And that's what's got to change. And who is going to accept them in another country? If you say, I'll fly them back, many countries will say, thank you very much. We're not accepting an aircraft of people returning them across our borders. Some countries do, but very few. So the dilemma of the, the technical difficulties of doing this are very, very big. That's why Rwanda is being used, itself a country with a terrible history of division and racial uh, tension, now has become rather successful economically. But whether that's the right policy, time alone will tell. But the Australians had this problem of 
emigration levels that they could not accept. And they put people onto a, an island up right off uh, the top of Australia. It worked because people didn't, weren't ever allowed to settle in Australia. And people knew that it wasn't any use trying to get into Australia because if you got in, you were thrown out. And there was a place to put them. We don't have a place. We can't put them in Guernsey or Jersey or the Isle of Man. Um, and so this is the dilemma the government faces. I, I hesitate to either suggest an alternative, but I think this will take a lot of working out. But I don't like the gut reaction of people. It's impossible. We have to deal with migrant flows, and we can't accept everybody who wants to come to Britain. They'd be standing room only if we started that one. We're coming towards the end of the podcast, Lord Owen. Thank you um, for, for, for coming on to the podcast. And I have one final question. Now, for the majority of this podcast, we have discussed Britain's relationship with Russia. And of course, at the moment, uh, there is a very um, high amount of tension because of Ukraine uh, between Britain and Russia. But looking forward into the future, do you think there will be a time in which Britain and Russia will be able to work closer together? And do you yes. think that that do you think that that time will only occur after the removal of Vladimir Putin? Well, we didn't discuss the whole fall of the Berlin Wall, which was itself a success story for NATO and for containment and for not. Uh, fighting aggressive wars against Russia, but championing human rights, arguing your case, and winning through. And we had very good relations with uh, Yeltsin because he gave up communism, abandoned the uh, state-run economy, and in, took off price controls and started to work towards a more market-orientated economy. So for a, a period of Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and early Putin, things were really quite good. And I think we have to recognize that for 20 years, it looked as if we might have a very successful relationship with Russia. And I think this is the problem. Putin is now a dictator and he seems to have the power to control how Russians are thinking. And he's playing old tunes, banging the drum of Russia, the great country, and trying to convince them that with a really relatively small economy, they can take on the world, including the United States of America. I think they are going to come to a very uh, hard wall of resistance and let's hope it's a peaceful change inside Russia and that they get rid of their leaders and choose other ones and move slowly towards a democracy and that's what Yeltsin wanted. Yeltsin was a very remarkable man and unfortunately an alcoholic in great pain to some extent he alcohol was a duller of pain but a very remarkable man. He made changes very rapidly because he feared that they wouldn't last. But he brought Putin to prominence because he himself became corrupt towards the end and he wanted it to be protected and was afraid that having shelled the White House, that parliament, he would be, uh, when he stepped down, taken through the courts and even uh, hung. So... I think Yeltsin is a very complicated figure. We're only absorbing it, but there was some greatness to, to his character. Um, but at the moment, it's can't, you can't put a time scale on how long Putin will last. He could last a year, five years, maybe like die a natural death. Uh, who knows? By and large, in the world that we live in, trying to uh, 
kill the heads of government does not work. And we have to see them changed by the country in which they hold power. And that means patience and pursuing dialogue and debate and trying to influence the way they conduct their politics and their life. And I don't personally think it will come through war, but if the Ukrainians were to come up, even, even Stephen with Russia, that would be a big change. That would be defeat for Putin. He expects to win and he expected to win overwhelmingly. And he's been checked. Now, we don't know whether he will override that Ukrainian independence and resistance and national. I'm not afraid of nationalism. I think it's a very natural uh, condition. And as long as it doesn't overreach itself and become nationalistic and antagonistic to other nations, but a certain pride in your country you're seeing as a driving force for the Ukrainians at the moment, and essentially a good one. I think we have to do everything we can to support the Ukrainians, short of signing up and going to war against Russia, which I think would lead to a nuclear battle and massive casualties. And I think that one of the great dangers and fears that I have is that Putin actually believes that you can have a nuclear exchange at a tactical level without it becoming a strategic nuclear exchange. There are not many serious generals who I've met, admirals and air marshals, who believe that. They all think if you start a nuclear war, then there's an ineluctable dimension and drive which involves a greater exchange of nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are very different to the normal uh, weaponry that we have. So we must do our utmost to guard against taking any policies that risk a nuclear war. We have done that very successfully since 1945, and NATO has been one of the great success stories in our age. Because the Americans stayed on European territory, Remember, they came in only in 1918 on the ground mm. in the First World War, although they said they would support us much earlier. And they only came into the war after they were attacked at Pearl Harbor. Truman's greatness was to say in 1945, I'm bringing the troops home. The boys are coming home. And then a year later, in 1946, he had the courage to tell the American people, I'm sorry, we've got to keep some of our boys on the land of Europe and work with Europe and introduce the Marshall Plan and was part of the movement of the great British Labour Foreign Minister and it's been for NATO. And if I would cling to NATO because it is crucial ingredient is it has American power wielded with us in Europe. And I think it's kept the peace, had a marvellous record, and even now is the best hope for dealing with Putin. Mm, absolutely. Um, thank you once again uh, for coming on the, the podcast, Lord Owen. If people wish to buy the book, uh, where should they go to purchase it? Well, it's in any of the shops. It's uh, published by House, which is a small historical publisher. I've published two history books with them before. H-A-U-S, but they can buy it in their local bookshops. It's around because it's very topical, and many of the issues that we've discussed, it goes into in this book, and quite a large number of things we've not had time to discuss mm. are developed, and I hope in an informed way and in a modest way, some of these questions we don't know how to resolve. We, we aren't sure which way things are going. And I hope there are things in this book which give people ideas of how they can improve relations with Russia. Meantime, let's do everything we can in human contact and to help the Ukrainians in their fight. It's a monstrous, aggressive act, Putin's invasion 
of Ukraine. He can't face up to using the word, avoid sea. But you cannot live at peace with each other, let alone live at peace, given all the pressures of migration and everything else that we briefly touched on, unless there is measure of tolerance between countries. And what Putin stands for at the moment is supreme intolerance. Indeed, absolutely. Thank you uh, once again uh, for coming Pleasure. on the podcast. Thank you. I hope your readers or listeners uh, are stimulated to buy the book or read it, take it out from their library and contribute then to the very public debate which we're having in this country at the moment, and rightly so, in a democratic framework of how to deal with Putin and how to deal with Putin's Russia. But always remember that there's a different Russia and that's people of very enlightened behavior and culture and richness of history that we must never turn away from. We've worked with them before, we can work with them again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.